0: Hello Chelsea fans and welcome back to another episode of the Tinkerman podcast. As usual, this is your host Joey and once again I am joined by my illustrious co-host Jason McHlynn uh first podcast of the new year so although technically it's, it's getting towards the end of the month now happy new year to, to all tinkerman listeners uh hopefully the new year is treating you slightly better than uh, than it ended in terms of chelsea um and uh, i think certainly over the next coming weeks we've got some pretty interesting content and some i think certainly some some quite uh unique episodes on the horizon as well in terms of tinkerman stuff here so first and foremost Yaz, how's it going mate how's uh how's january treating you and uh What's the, uh, I suppose we can give the listeners a little bit of a tease on the on the rebuild episode that we're looking to to do sort of end of the month come uh, come the end of the January window.
1: Yeah, all good, mate. Happy New Year and uh, um, first one of the year. But um, yeah, all good. Uh, probably better than what we've seen on the pitch. But hey, you know, growing pains. Uh, we'll do it. Yeah, like you sort of alluded to there, we're going to be doing an episode on rebuilds. What is a rebuild? How do rebuilds go at the end of the month? I'm quite interested to that. And we'll look at some of our rivals and contemporaries and um, and then some clubs like Newcastle who sort of make a mockery of the whole rebuild concept. Um, and so <laughs> it's, it's sometimes, look, I'm not saying we don't need a rebuild, but sometimes projects and rebuilds can be a little bit Emperor's New clothes and it's just about getting the most out of what you've got, which um, unfortunately so Newcastle seem to be doing. But look, we're not the only club struggling. I do think it is going to get better. I am pretty excited by most of the January business, even if I think the draft. Drive- our Felix uh, one is a bit short-sighted. I'd like to get him long-term, but we'll see what happens in the summer. But um, but yeah, mate, I'm, I'm all good and looking forward to this pod.
0: Yeah, and I think certainly in terms of the, the January window, it's going to be something we talk about here today. So we're looking kind of first and foremost... Really, uh, I suppose this is kind of a state of the nation. So ahead of, as you was saying, that sort of big rebuild-esque podcast in terms of what we think needs to happen in terms of players, in terms of personnel, in terms of recruitment, in terms of philosophy, strategy, all that sort of stuff there. Taking a little bit, I think, of a, of a temperature check, uh, kind of where we stand at the moment. Obviously, post-World Cup, we've had a few games back after, after the break, there's been some, probably a little bit more from, from Potter in terms of team selection, you could argue at the moment as well. So just taking a look at whether that is, I suppose, anything to read into at this point at all. But as we're saying, yeah, looking at January window, looking at sort of the summer signings as well, how they fared uh, Potter's performance. And I think in, in terms of maybe a little bit of what what we're trying to, to see for the rest of 2022-23. Uh, of so, yeah, you know, as I say, gearing up for that big episode in terms of sort of the art of the rebuild. But with that being said, let's get on to Part one of the podcast here. So, yes, I put to you the tale of the tape. Graham Potter has managed 20 matches for Chelsea so far. Nine wins, four draws, seven losses. 24 goals scored, 21 against, 31 points. Points per match, 1.55. We know the caveats we've spoken at length about them you know we could we could look at the squad we could look at sort of you know the 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 different personnel available the different makeup of the squad the different managers all this sort of stuff we've spoken about before uh no pre-season you know we've we, i think we've done the caveats to death in terms of the potential i'm not going to call them excuses but just the circumstances that graham potter has taken over at chelsea so if we kind of put that slightly to the side um again fairly difficult in some circumstances but try to put it to the side as much as possible looking specifically at what we've seen from from Potter in charge of Chelsea and sort of how is he faring? I think the first question that I want to ask and maybe have a look at is in terms of, I suppose, does does the face fit? You know, have we seen a, a manager who maybe has a, a Chelsea quote-unquote personality or demeanour? You know, the way he's conducting himself in press conferences, his sort of way that he is behaving on the touchline. At the moment, given, as I say, there's sort of 20 matches in charge, probably not a big enough sample size to really take an enormous conclusion on, but... In terms of state of the nation, that is what we're trying to do. Do you think at the moment that he looks like a long-term Chelsea manager, a manager that or coach that, that people can get behind that is going to really start to shape and mould a, a potentially an incredibly young group of players going forward? I,
1: th- I think it's one of those things where our, our opinion doesn't matter, in a way. Like I yeah, think, true. I think that he's got the backing. I think the ownership are committed to make, making this thing work. I think they are they're not going to fall on their sword where they've made this big gamble of spending so much money to get a management team in and a coaching team in. And I I look, I, fall, I fall prey to it as well, mate. Like I'm a fan like anybody else. And because we're not at training and we, all we have to go on is the performances. And if the performances are bad, I think naturally we look elsewhere for our positivity. Performances are bad, doesn't matter. Lewis Hall's playing and he's 18 and he's getting all this experience. Performances are bad, doesn't matter um the the manager is speaking publicly in a way that we can get behind and applauding the away fans and and beating his chest and and getting the crowd up for it when we do well and i think without seeing training we just look for those positives don't we and i think i'll be honest like i'm at a point with potter now where at first i kind of wanted a bit more in the press conferences and it does it still does my head in like the um
0: the management. I think. I think
1: he purposely. Yeah, and I, I think he purposely tries to not give all, a lot away in purchase conferences. I think he. I think that I don't remember who was the subject of his uh, tongue lashing the other day. It might have actually been uh, Matt Law when he said some of your questions are stupid, but I have to answer them anyway. And amateur psychologists armchair psychologists to one person that's showing passion to another person that's cracking under pressure i think i think the psychoanalysis of press conferences can go a bit far sometimes i get frustrated too sometimes when i see things like oh we we have to go to craven cottage where there's an amazing atmosphere no there's not bro. craven <laughs> cottage is one of the worst atmospheres in the uk it's like it's got a neutral section up. in the away
0: and it's got a literally got a neutral section in the stadium yeah it's
1: horrendous and so it's that can be frustrating and like the constant sort of praise of atmospheres and whatever. Like it was fine when he said it against Brighton, um, and it was because you know they were very much up for that and going against their role manager. But when you heard it about Craven Cottage after hearing a few other games, you were a little bit like, okay, you heard it with Nottingham Forest as well. Okay, their home form was picked up. It can get frustrating. And I think, like, like I said, with the two ways you can go, you can either see it as someone who doesn't quite grasp the seismic size of a club where everything is micro uh, analyzed and, and just analyzed to death, or it's a guy who just, he doesn't really care what's going to get asked. He's going to come and straight bat it to use a, a cricket analogy and just bam, just say the same thing. And he's off and he doesn't care. I don't, at this point, I think I'm beyond caring as well. And I think all that really matters is what he's doing on the training pitch. I think, Whether he applauds the away end or doesn't, whether he shows passion in the press conferences or doesn't, whether he gives tactical detail in the press conferences or doesn't, I think at this point is is irrelevant. I think the most important thing is, are the training ideas and the sessions and the um, principles and the the intensity and the quality of what is being done day-to-day in Cobham, good or bad? If it's good, great. And that doesn't always show up in performances. Sometimes your training could be amazing. Your ideas can be amazing. And the performances just aren't working for whatever reason. We've talked about those myriad of factors and yeah. the injuries and the this and the politics and the all sorts, right? Loads of excuses could be made. I think all that we have to just hope for, and it is hope because none of us are there, is that good work's getting done on the trainer pitch. And that's all I kind of care about. And I, I'm trying to be positive because I could sit here and just point out, oh, this is crap. This is crap. This is crap. It's been a crap season. We're, we're, at time of speaking, still tenth, I think um, it, it is what it is. I do think there there is some positives against Fulham. I think there was some positives against Palace, um, and I'm just at the point of of clinging to those really. And as much as I think the quality of what's available is better than tenth, I do also sort of accept that there has been a lot of injuries. I also have sort of concerns about the general coaching of the injuries. If I'm honest, I think um, it's a big thing about medical review, but as Emma Hayes kind of famously said in an interview, once the conditioning job is the job of the coach. She finds the idea of strength and conditioning coaches, the title a bit weird. She's like, I'm the coach. I prepare them. And with frequent sort of muscle and, tendon injuries and stuff that kind of i'm not this isn't a blame thing but i do think that's more of a rounded issue than just the the doctors are crap um i think that's something where you maybe need to look at the the training i think when that was happening at arsenal they did a revamp of the medical team but they also i believe involved a lot more strength training and and looked after that side of the of the preparation a bit better so I don't know, maybe if that's a thing of someone adjusting to three games a week as opposed to one. I don't know. Who knows? It's it's so hard to say. And I and I forgive fans sort of for being negative when all we have to go on are these quite uninspiring performances, generally. But it's a tough job. Um, I could sit here and say, I'd do this, this, this. But it is a tough job. Um, and it hasn't been helped by the injuries. It hasn't been helped by the scrutiny of the new owners. It hasn't been helped by... Uh, the squad that was inherited and all of that sort of stuff. What I would say is I think the Queen's death and the world cup were good opportunities to really analyze your preparation, really review your practice, really get some ideas out. And we haven't really seen any new manager bounce esque effects out of those. Um, and so I'm not saying that you should be better because of those, but I'm saying it does that mean it would be worse if we didn't have those little breaks. Um but hey, look, I think Fulham had some moments of positivity mainly from Joao Felix. Yeah. I think Mudrik is a good signing as we'll touch on probably at the very end. Um and a really la- something we've lacked for a long time to be honest. Um and I think Palace had some nice moments between Gallagher Mount Gallagher Mount Ziyech um which we can talk about in a bit more depth a bit later. Um but yeah, so look, I think it's just there's so much wrong. Let's just try and maybe focus on the the bits that are right. And I know we're going to be talking about what a rebuild means in a week and a half. But um, yeah, it's look. It's not fun. No one's enjoying. No one's enjoying it at the moment. But, but yeah, we move.
0: <laughs> we move. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think. I mean. To be honest with you guys. I don't think anybody would really care too much about the manager if we'd won sort of, you know, 19 out of 20 matches. I mean, he could literally not say a single word or even remotely acknowledge anybody if he was winning. And I think, again, you know, the, the point you made there, and I think a, some very good points overall, the one sort of to, to dial in on is the the seismic expectations of, of or the shift of expectations and the profile of club that, that Graham Potter is now managing. You know, it's possibly... It advised us, you know, to go into to matches and, and even okay, even if things, for example, like we are we are aspiring to be like Manchester City, you know, naturally we want to be as good as them, we want to compete with them, but but no fan really wants to hear that, you know, no fan wants to hear that, you know, you've got aspirations to be like another team or you know, again to your point, praising Fulham's Fulham's atmosphere, which. You know, for for all the the, the goodwill of of being neighbours is is absolutely atrocious at, at the best of times.
1: Craven Cottage actually looked decent that game, but he said this beforehand, and anyone who's been yeah. Craven Cottage knows it's awful.
0: Exactly, yeah. Which is uh is definitely an interesting way to to sort of build a rapport with with the fans there. But I think I, I want to move on slightly more to kind of the, the the tactical stuff. You you kind of touched on a little bit there in terms of the the Fulham and Palace performances. I think my contention when he came to Chelsea is I think he fell very much into the trap of, you know, he was a sort of an up and coming coach managing at a, a certain level, coming into Chelsea and, and maybe pandered a little bit to the sort of the the professional sort of status quo at Chelsea, the the elder statesmen, the guys who have have won stuff and been around the club, for example, maybe maintain status quo, you know, with the selections a tiny bit much there. Um, I didn't see a huge amount of innovation from a coach who, you know, reportedly was, was super innovative at Brighton and, and elsewhere that he's coached into to kind of target some of those long standing issues that Chelsea have, have seen tactically for for a number of years now. And I think maybe from my perspective, I was hoping to see some sort of attempt to to address those um before trying to sort of make the necessary moves in the in the market to to fully close or resolve those gaps and maybe again I suppose the last point really is that this kind of chopping and changing between a back three and a back four maybe it is dictated you know we've said at times that maybe the squad is sort of half and half in terms of sort of the system that they see but kind of chopping and changing tactics with with different players and personnel from week to week doesn't always leave you the ability to create sort of cohesion and develop a, a real kind of strong playing cadence going forward so I think from a, from a tactical perspective you know, when we look at Potter, I mean, where, where are you at the moment? I mean, if we're looking at, at let's say, uh, the, the sort of Fulham and the Palace performances as a bit more of a maybe an, an indication of where he is with regards to selection, we're seeing, you know, Lewis Hall playing a lot more regularly now in terms of in terms of wingback Conor Gallagher. He's sort of staking a bit of a claim in the team. Um, what what is sort of the the, the the conclusions that you're taking from that, or, or do you think at the moment again it's just a, a question of, of of fitness and, and potentially? Um, you know, sort of looking into the 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 reasoning behind sort of you know Lewis Hall maybe displacing somebody like cokorea for the time being is is a little bit more to do with fitness than than anything else but I, I, I suppose what i 'm asking is have you seen anything from a tactical perspective that gives you confidence that that Potter is this sort of innovative coach who really is going to to take us forward with his coaching
1: right, so I always had a contention with this from Potter at Brighton anyway. I always felt that the reputation of Potter amongst people was what was seen in big games. Super Sunday, four o'clock kickoffs, away to United, where they could play on the counter and um take advantage of the big spaces and being the underdog, etc. 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 But actually the reality of Brighton was he not went to war with the fans but publicly clapped back at the fans um for calling his football boring at at least twice. Um I remember one interview where he basically told the Brighton fans to remember where they were a few years ago because they were saying this football was boring. Um, there was analytical think pieces written on his Brighton side saying, um, basically trying to rethink finishing and saying, you know, they get to the final third, but they don't score goals. Maybe they're just creating the wrong type of chance for the individuals they have. So, So the topic of like not getting enough wins, being very solid without being spectacular, not converting dominance into goals, um, have always been part of the Potter mm. um, story and the Potter reality. And that kind of, uh, yeah, I think maybe the the reputation of him being this daring, uh, full of ideas, bag of tricks guy, I'm not 100% I always uh, related with. I think he was flexible and I think he is flexible and I think he tries to mix and match the shapes to get different situations. And ironically, I almost... Am- Prefer what he did against Brighton away, where he was playing two really high wing backs and left the back three out to dry, because at least that gave you an indication of wanting to be this really expansive play. I think, depending on again, I think I think you, the the battle battle lines are drawn so strictly with Potter at the moment that you can't sort of have an opinion without falling each way. You either have a pro or anti Potter, you have a pro Potter um, and anti Board and anti Squad, or you're anti or anti-Potter and, and pro squad and he's not getting the best out of it. Because with Tuchel, it was always, well, the players can't be that bad going forward. Now they're still that bad going forward. Um, maybe it is, but um, I guess my point is, depending on where you are on the Potter thing, you really want it to be expansive and daring and brave. Or you want him to be a bit more of a pragmatist and um, get points on the board. And I think he is trying, in my opinion, since the World Cup to get points on the board. I think he's gone far more conservative. I think he's basically gone 4 3 one in every game except for Fulham. Um, The 4 3 one is usually with the caveat of Zachariah or Gallagher being able to get forward. Zachariah against Bournemouth a lot, Gallagher against Palace a lot. um, And sort of leave Jorginho to to manage that. And it's been... Decent. It's been pretty effective um, when it's worked, especially against Palace. I think it was pretty good. Um, but then I, 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 you could argue that's a bit of a failure. It's like, a, you know what, I can't be expansive with this group. I don't feel confident. I'm worried for my job. And we're going to go sensible. We're going to go safe. Um, and going safe, there usually is an acceptance that we go safe to prioritise the now and get points on the board. We've gone safe and haven't really got many points on the board. I think Nottingham Forest was concerning that it was a second half where all that seemed to really happen was intensity and and line of pressure be brought up from Forest, and we, we seemed to crumble from that. Um, Bournemouth, we were pretty poor in the second half against Bournemouth as well. Uh, I think we lost control of the game a little bit against Bournemouth, arguably to the foot of the gas. It was first game back after the World Cup. There is a caveat with that. Obviously City's tough because we're just nowhere near them at the moment. Um and so yeah, I mean we have got kind of schooled by City, especially in the cup with some with some rotation and stuff. Um Fulham, I think they are the better at a game as well. And that was sort of again going back to a relatively, relatively safe selection, I would say, of a 3-4-3. Three, Okay, Joao Felix is in with minimal training time, but it's a 3-4-3 with Azpilicueta and Hall as the wing-backs. I mean, that's pretty conservative, no matter how you no matter how you look at it. And we got outplayed there, even before the red. Um, and then Palace, I'd say, was a relatively safe selection as well. Reminded me a little bit more of the Wolves game, which was one of his better Premier League games, where he just had good players close to each other in high areas of the pitch and kind of let that manage it for him so if people were looking for this expansive full of ideas bag of tricks i don't think they've particularly got that so far i definitely haven't got it since the world cup but i'm not going to begrudge the guy with the microscope he's under and the um, pressure that is coming with the job and the resources being plowed into new personnel that demands results to go a bit safer and to and to try and manage the game that way i i like, I mean, I I you and me were Zachariah fans when he was in Germany. So we're not against Zachariah's uh, involvement to to shore up midfield. I think he shows just how much we've missed having someone who can, yeah. you know, win run the ball, tackle. hold somebody <laughs> off, run tackle, yeah, and have a bit of physical presence there and get the ball yeah. up the pitch quicker, especially with kante Um and Cover, who's basically been playing on one leg all season. So yeah, it's it's just a tough one, mate. I think I think the priority for the rest of the season is try things where appropriate. Um, but it seems to me a little bit more conservative, if I'm honest. Um, and I think Palace had some good positive aspects to it, I think, in terms of how we wanted to attack. But yeah, I think Lewis Hall coming in is a good thing. We don't know, again, if that's fitness. We don't know if that's Kukureo being in the proper doghouse. We don't know exactly what that is. But again, <laughs> pick pick your side. Either you're very concerned <laughs> that a 60 pounds left back is being outplaced by someone who's doing GCSEs a year and a half ago, or <laughs> you're buzzing that Lewis Hall is getting a chance in the team, which is well deserved. And although he's making a few mistakes, like losing the ball for Fulham's opener, um, you're just buzzing to see those learning experiences happen to a, a, a Cobham product who deserves it since his debut under Tuchel. So <laughs> you can you can be negative, you could be positive, pretty much on everything that's happening with the with the team this season. And I think they're. I think, yeah, I'm just choosing the side of positivity for now.
0: I think the the last thing there, and I, I kind of agree, I, I am veering towards um, being a little bit more positive. I think certainly with the, the team selections, um, it seems like when you're starting to include players like Lewis and, and Carney and, and obviously Connor from the from the outset rather than kind of you bringing them on or, or whatever it is to sort of maybe impact or change games. Seems to be a little bit more focused on trying to. I think just adding a bit of dynamism to the team. Um, in terms of, th- I think maybe Potter has realised that maybe the the kind of safety first approach, as you say, you know, kind of whether it's right or wrong or justified, he is under an enormous amount of pressure to deliver. He's had an enormous amount of of uh, well, not personally, but in terms of the the summer uh, signings he made, there's an enormous amount of money there to try and show that he can he can make work or to extract some level of performance out of. It. And I think as you has said at the beginning of the episode regardless of of, of my opinions on the squad and I appreciate that my opinion of the squad is probably a lot harsher than most people's there is talent in the squad that that sort of certainly commands or at least would would suggest that that we are better than a a 10th place team and I think certainly the performances as well it's not a question of just being unlucky and and not necessarily getting the the results in matches I think certainly this at times this season the performances have just been poor and it's been a been a reflection of that but I think, to, to sort of, before my, I suppose, moving on to the, the second portion of the of the pod today, the, I think the selections, I think the inclusion of Lewis Hall, you know, completely completely get Yaz's point. He is going to make mistakes. He's not playing in a position that he has really ever played before, before the first team in terms of that left wing back role. Um, you know, uh, Carney Chukwamaka, you know, starting, starting matches, showing his ability uh, Connor, I think you know it, it just shows you that his his energy. You know, he, I don't think he's ever going to be given credit to being the most technically sound footballer that Chelsea will ever produce, but his his energy levels are infectious, and I think again, um, some absolutely incredible winding up at Crystal Palace towards the end of that game. So I don't know if you clocked the uh, the sort of the collapse and getting picked up and, and picked on. Absolutely incredible.
1: Oh, it was amazing! It was amazing. The fact that he's the fact that he has the balls to do that to literally his teammates from six months or. Eight months ago is hilarious, by the way. Like,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was <laughs> he's gone funny. from
1: he's gone from not celebrating against them earlier in the season to uh, just shit It was amazing.
0: Yeah, all while just making sure his hair was on point when he was putting his hair, band, hair band back in. So I just love the the casualness of it there. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are some I think seeds of change when it comes to team selections. When it comes to potentially Potter realizing that we we maybe need to sort of utilize some of the more dynamic players we have in the team. Um, even sort of, I suppose you could say ZH kind of return, um in one of those kind of wide positions as well. Has potentially again given a, an indication that maybe he's not completely set on players or set on you know settings rate, which is a good thing. Um, and I think as well we have think, seen think, him sorry, drop some just players to, as well. Just to, yeah, jump in, yeah.
1: I think you're right, but just on the ZH point, like I see a lot of people, and they're right again. Look, there's no right. I, I get it why you'd be annoyed. I get it why you'd be positive. They're right. Like ZH is not going to be here in a year and a half, so it's like why are you why are you going to play him? But more than most, you have at least a, you have a certainty with ZH that he is going to deliver a ball onto Havertz's head that probably goes in the goal twice again. Right, that shifting and cross. Yeah, okay, cool. It's predictable. Yes, it's you don't want to build your game model about it in an ideal world. All of that, but I think it's again it's that pragmatism. It's like of all my forward players, Mount is in maybe the worst form we've ever seen him. Um, Javielix is now suspended um Yang let's not um even (laughs) start Havertz is Havertz yeah Havertz is what Havertz is of all the forward players okay now maybe Mudrik can add something but Ziyech is probably Pulisic is out like you know Ziyech is probably one of your most reliable no Reese James Ziyech and and what he can offer from that wide space is probably the most reliable creative fulcrum you're going to get so this is where you can sort of see that his hands are a bit tied and and he has to sort of just say well look this is what we are off because as much as I was I was I was team give Amari Hutchinson all those minutes the cameo of Hutchinson late against City he looked very under uh, cooked for senior football unfortunately um, 100% yes. and so look I, it, it's tough it's tough it's a tough situation and um, yeah we we go we move Mudrick Mudrick season save us <laughs>
0: Yeah, we'll talk about him in part three. So uh, that concludes the the first part of this this podcast here. Uh, as usual, thank you to the sponsors for financially contributing to the show, and we will see you after the break. Hello, Chelsea fans, and welcome back to the second part of this Tinker Men podcast today. As always, I am joined by Yassin McLean. This is your host Joe Tweeds, and for the second part of this podcast, we are going to do maybe. I don't know if, they, again, this is uh, a little bit uh, premature, but we're going to do a little bit of an evaluation on Chelsea's uh, Chelsea summer spending. So, sort of a little bit of a conclusion on where we are with certain players. Mid-season report class. Yeah, Let's exactly, call them mid-season
1: yeah. report class. We might not go ABC.
0: Exactly, yeah. Um, just sort of looking at how Chelsea have, have spent money and and I think as well, to I suppose, to give it a little bit of a, a juxtaposition with the third part, which we'll be kind of looking a little bit more at the January window so far. and and with some sort of hopes and expectations for what we'd like to see before the window closes. But uh, starting, yeah, in in terms of this particular, I suppose, section of the podcast here, we signed, I think, let's say five, five or six sort of first team players, six if you include uh, Carney Chukwemeka in terms of that first team picture. Um, We spent a real considerable amount of money in the summer, uh, 70 million on Wesley Fofana, about 60 million on, on Marco Correa, about 37 and a half on Raheem Sterling, 33 on Kalidou Koulibaly, about 20 mil on on Kanyi and probably around about 10 million on Pierre Emerick Um I think we've probably more than most when it comes to the centre back spend. Probably been a little bit more, I would say, fair in terms of. Obviously, we lost both Andreas Christensen and uh, Antonio Rudiger to three transfers in the summer. We needed to, to sign some players, not even sort of terms of just finding starters, but also because of, of sort of centre-back depth as well. So potentially with those two signings, you could look at them and say, okay, that was kind of a neat sort of equation. Maybe you're looking at, at, at Kukurea as a genuine alternative or, or competition for a then, um, and, and potentially now, sort of Ben Chirwa in terms of those injuries that he's seen. Um, Sterling, again, I think we'll discuss in a little bit more detail. Chukwemeka seemed to be sort of one of Neil Bath's kind of uh, signings or, or prospects that he'd identified and, and worked with the new ownership group on as well. And then we have obviously the Aubameyang signing here. So I'm, I'm going to sort of go from the top in terms of spend. Um, we'll start with with Wesley Fofana. Um, I think that there's a few questions here, Yaz, and, and and again, we'll just sort of take them as they come here. I think first and foremost, I don't think we really know what we have of him yet because I just don't think he's played enough football. Um the one big question and i saw it asked on uh i can't remember which which, uh, which podcast asked it recently but it was a really really fair question in terms of you know chelsea sanctioned a 70 to 75 million pound move for a guy was like literally a couple of months removed from from suffering a broken leg and, and obviously he's he's had some very uh, significant injury sort of issues since he's been at chelsea as well i think the the question is in terms of Hafana what what is the long term pitch with him I mean, I mean assuming we can get him back to to, to sort of fitness. Is he going to be sort of this sort of bedrock of, of Chelsea's defence in the future, given sort of the outlay on him? Um, and I guess as well, I mean, what have been your impressions of him of him so far? Have you have you got any sort of conclusions on him as a player? Do you think that he, he is going to be a player that Chelsea can count on in in the long term? You, you hope
1: so. I just don't think we've seen enough. I think um, him and Koulibaly was always a, like a bit of a funny one against um in terms of a pair. I think they both like to gamble for the ball and go for the ball. Um, and that's the sort of game that mainly sticks out to me that I remember. Um, but I think my my concern is less the the fibula fracture and the broken leg. It's more that he had a he had a knee, fl- a relatively long term, medium term knee injury at Saint Etienne. Yeah, there was a couple thigh and knee issues at Leicester, um, and now it's the knee injury that has um, been keeping him out again. So concerning um, for sure. And yeah, it was a lot of money to spend on somebody who has those concerns. Um, Tuchel, very sort of, we know, veered the club a little bit away from Kunde. seen maybe more in preference of Fafana. Um, it's tough. I think just, we have to just, again, hope that um, the the medical team that come in and whatever root and branch reform they bring in works um, and and rehabilitates players better. I think it's, um, Fafana is almost like a little case study in terms of where I don't think people quite appreciate That an athlete's body, there is their livelihood. And if they don't feel that your environment and your staff are going to protect their livelihood and body, that puts you as a club in an incredibly concerning position. I don't know how obviously accurate it is. I think it was Nizar Gansela basically said in in the standard that the players are concerned. Um, And they're just like, well, hold on a minute. Everyone's dropping like flies. And again, I sort of go back to, we don't know if that's the coaching and the conditioning. We don't know if that's the um, physiotherapy. We don't know if that's the, which often is lines of communication between departments about not being sure about whether um, players are fully ready to come back and everything like that. And um, there's even talk that they're sort of just um, outsourcing uh, the physical work and stuff. I don't know exactly how true that is, but I think think Fafana is almost a, Case study, I don't think we can comment on him as a player in a Chelsea shirt, we just can't. Um, But I think he is almost a warning sign of no player who values their livelihood and their body and their health and their fitness is going to want to join a club where they think they'll be put at risk and in danger um, and their career prospects will be put at risk and in danger. And I think rather than judging Fafana as a player, I think we just need to hope that he's actually on the pitch um, and and managed properly uh, moving forward because that is going to be, we've got Zakaria down with a knee injury. We've got, okay, fair enough. They've, he's had a history as well. We've got Reese returning maybe a bit too early. We've got Fafana um, returning maybe a bit too early and not being managed right. And that is the sort of thing that players are going to see as a massive red flag. That would be my main comment on Fafana, much less him as a player because I don't think that would be fair.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely echo that. I mean, you know, it's one of them that you think sort of on paper, you know, what he brings in terms of that skill set would pair very well, potentially with, with Baddy Ashiel in the future, potentially with Levi Colwell. Um, obviously, you know, an incredible, incredible athlete, incredible physical player, you know, very much in the, the sort of modern centre-back mould there. But yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting point that his potential, I suppose, recovery or the way that the club manages him is going to be almost a, a use case. You would imagine from not just from a players' perspective, but agents and and, and family and representatives of players as well will be looking at sort of how Chelsea, you know, it's it's getting to the point now where you're almost expecting, you know, you know, players that we are linked with to be injured at this point in time. So it was quite funny when obviously all of the, the Nkunku links were being sort of made in, in real sort of concrete and then, it, you know, he immediately he gets like an ACL injury or something like that. You know, the the power of Chelsea to sort of actually injure players who are linked with us is, is getting a little bit ridiculous as well. So I think from, you know, from Fafana's perspective, still very much a wait and see. We may really only see, start seeing the, the the, the the real picture with him, I suppose, in the summer, if we're looking at sort of pre-season training and going into next season. Hopefully, you know, he comes back this uh, this season and, and starts edging himself into into the team because I think certainly the way certain players are performing, we are going to need him, we're going to need Tra- Chalaba, we're going to need Badia Um, You know, Thiago Silva, for some reason, just seems to just be getting younger um, week on week in terms of his performances. But we do need somebody that can deputise um in a back three or back for at some point in there, but you would hope, certainly, given the outlay on him seventy, you know, to seventy-five million, whatever it's going to be in the, in sort of the the final situation there, you know, that Chelsea can can start to see, sort of, some semblance of the player that they've signed there. Um, talking about trying to to find some semblance of a player that they've signed, we're moving on to to Mark Kuchare here.
1: So I'm not even going to speak because I know I know you want to just take this one. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to be really fair. Um, and yeah, I think he's yeah. had some games where he's probably been a bit unfairly um, lambasted. I think there's a bit of a David Louise thing where you notice his hair and you notice his <laughs> keenness and busyness. And like, that's where your eyes go after, yeah. him, after a goal is conceded and stuff. I think he's had some good games. I think. He I, I liked some of his passing out the back was it was like first time and rash, but it was sort of chaotic and creative in a way. And I think the right players like a Joao Felix or Mudrick would have really benefited from that. That seems to have been reined in a little bit. I don't know if he's just not doing it because the runs aren't there and he's not doing it because he doesn't feel confident in his game anymore. Um but it's a massive red flag that even Potter is is playing Lewis Hall over him. Again, we we don't know if there's a knock there or or a what, but yeah, that is a Red flag. I do think, again, talking about the summer, I do think there's probably some concern around Chillwell physically. Um, yeah, that would make a lot more sense and why you'd put that outlay. But you've even got Ian Matson, who's potentially going to get into the Championship team of the year now, so that's going to be an awkward one. But yeah, I'll give you your five minutes on Kukureya, mate, because um, <laughs> I know I know you wanted to start.
0: So I'm, I'm glad you gave some some friendly contacts. I mean, I, I would say as well that like naturally. As with all Chelsea players I genuinely I really want them to be incredibly successful I wasn't I wasn't hugely a big fan of Cucurera to start with at Brighton I, I didn't quite buy into sort of the the hype around the, the data and also just his general level of play he reminds me very much of, of Wayne Bridge as, as that kind of profile of player. And, and that may be sacrilege to people who either rem- remember Wayne Bridge or, or people who are very big fans of Mark Kukurea. But for some reason, I have this association that, that Kukurea is very kind of bridgey-esque for me and that he's quite a functional I think, player.
1: I, I think concerningly for a top team, Wayne Bridge was much better in the final third. And I think yes, that's he was, probably yeah. where the Kukurea problem is, where at Brighton, you're spending most of your game maybe in the middle third, defensive third. Now you're in a top team, you're expected to provide a bit of that quality. And he's he's really lacking. Um, unless,
0: 60 yeah. mil as well, yes. I mean, and, and I, know, I know these 10, things will, are 10 mil
1: 10 mil Colwell facts. Colwell, Colwell tax. Colwell I mean, 60 tax. mil and, and we literally... almost lost
0: Levi Colwell, who looks like he's on the verge yeah, of being called been up been by been England after bizarre, just, part. you know, which is uh, incredible. I mean, if we would have lost Levi Colwell and we'd have got Cook Ray for 50 mil, that, that might have been one of the worst transfers that we've actually made here. So the positive, as, as you suggested there, is that the 10 million Levi Cobble tax that we've paid hopefully means that we'll, we'll keep Levi Cobble at the club and he can actually go on and become the 26th that Chelsea have uh, have needed post-JT. Um, I just I just don't see it with with Kukura. I can't remember, because uh, for me, I, I do agree that he has had some good games at Chelsea. I'm not going to sort of sit here and say that he's been an absolute train wreck of a player. But it might have been the City game where I, th- I can't remember who was playing against him. But he was getting turned inside out, and, and it, he couldn't get it anywhere Morris. near. Yeah, I think Maris absolutely made him look like a Sunday League player. And I'm looking at him and thinking, you know, 60 million pounds for a, for a, still technically a, a left back, left wing back, whatever you want to call him, a guy who's played left centre back for Chelsea. Um, and that was that was super concerning. And then you see, you know, Lewis Hawk who by trade and and by hopefully in the future we get to see him play play some sort of central midfield for for Chelsea comes in and again, by no stretch of the imagination is, is Lewis will perfect, has made uh, a number of mistakes. Some of them have been fairly high profile, but, you know, can stick with players, wins wins tackles, you know, gets back into into decent areas, will compete. Um, I just I just look at this as, and I, I'm really sort of scratching my head, and, uh, okay, you know the, the Ben Chilwell point is completely fair. You know you might want to say okay with his injury record and obviously what's happened this season, having a player who could arguably compete and maybe in in you know, certain lights has, has performed better than, than Ben post injury, is is a is a wise thing to do. But I think for for sixty mil to have a guy who is now you know being replaced by an eighteen year old kid um, who's who's not even playing in his actual position has um, Ian Matson you know having like like a very much like a Reese Jamesy kind of season in the championship for for Burnley and you know Vincent Company is has really decided to to get the absolute best out of him and you're looking at him as somebody who maybe under the right coach could come back next season and genuinely compete. He is, you know, for, for people who are unaware, he is really having a, a breakout season, you know, phys- physically he's he's kind of small and spiky, but he's great going forward. You know, he's having such a fantastic season. And you're kind of looking at Kukarea as almost if, if Cheerwell comes back to anywhere near his his sort of best form for Chelsea is this sort of sixty million pound weight um, in terms of sort of signings, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure on this. On why a why sort of that level of spend was necessary to sign him, um, the, the fee seems, still seems astronomical. The fact that we almost lost Cole in the process makes it a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, but I, I don't know when we're sort of looking at his his future here. If if he's not going to reclaim that starting left back spot from or left wing back spot from from Lewis Hall, are, are we that confident he, that he's going to be here in in the summer potentially? I mean. You know, somebody pointed out the other day, you know, he's not hes not a Spanish international. You know, he wasn't playing for a top team. He wasn't a Champions League footballer. And yet we were quite happy to spend, you know, 50, 60 mil on him. It just seems a little bit of a perplexing one, yes.
1: Yeah. And I mean, look, let's not forget City were in, although they drew their sort of line in the sand at 40 million, they were in as well. And he basically was on strike to force that move through. So um, there's clearly a player there that good coaches see and see value in and identify, I don't think. Um, Potter getting the best out of him at Brighton, Pep and Tuchel I mean they might one of them be wrong but if all three of them agree that there's a player there there must be something that is of value. Um, I do think the translation to a bigger side has been a problem. I think the little inverted role which he could potentially be quite good at he's not that good in possession that you really rely on him there he's not a Zinchenko, he's not um sort of a cancelo where he's going to come in and really add to to sort of the the short game in in midfield or or playing more direct balls in behind um he's very much an outside player down the flank i think and despite being an outside player he's not really got the legs or the dribbling ability to get round or behind behind the fullback so yeah it is concerning i do think chilwell's injury history probably I do think it's almost a false dichotomy comparing him to Truewell because I do think that must have played a part. Like, this is yeah, the only 100%. rationale I have, really. Um, but the fact that Hall is coming in and hasn't looked any worse is, yeah, like I say, you can be happy or, or <laughs> devastated about that. Uh, I'm choosing to be the former. But, um, but yeah, I mean, a lot has been made of uh, Bowley and Clear Lake and um, the moves to tie players down to long deals. And there's kind of like a salary cap approach to it. Um, I've seen an article floating around that probably talks about it in much more sophisticated financial terms than I do. But I think the, the thinking is if you get them tied down at 100 grand a week now and uh, broadcast rights explode and TV deals explode and and marketing deals get bigger and the revenue increases and you have them tied down, great. You know, they, they're tied down. You have them for the next four or four, five years. I think the, the worst case for both of those is either they're too good and they want more, or as we might already be sort of approaching Korea, and I hope I'm wrong, and he turns it around uh who the hell do you shift them to um because yeah, I don't see a lot of buyers based off the wages that he'd no doubt be on um and and what is what has shown so far, like you say not an international, so you wonder if there's the stock in Spain that there might be here um
0: yeah, I think we're going to go on to your uh, your mate here. <laughs> next up i know actually to be fair i think you were one of the i don't want to say like the early adopters because again we generally i can't kind of quite fair and give people the the benefit of the doubt here but the raheem sterling signing 47 and a half mil i think you called this one very very early on to me when, when we were linked in the summer um i think my, my my very broad assessment is just hasn't brought the goals or assists that you would maybe have hoped um Something you pointed out to me quite early and I've, I've noticed now more and more regularly is that there is seemingly for a guy that has been playing top level football since he was a teenager. You know, there is something of a, a physical decline in terms of his, his skill set that doesn't quite seem to have that electric pace and, and combination with the dribbling that we've seen, certainly at City and even at Liverpool before that. Um, I don't think really, and again, this, this is very much a kind of pseudo armchair take here. So, you know, very much a subjective opinion, but I don't think I see an enormous amount of, of leadership on the pitch when he's the most senior player in like a front three or, or whoever he's playing with. Um, and I think, again, at the moment, In terms of looking at journalists who have, you know, some decent, well-placed sources, seems to be a player that Chelsea are fairly happy to to sort of tout and to to receive bids for. So, again, we're looking at a player who, I mean, one of my kind of general red flags when it comes to transfers is when really elite teams sell players in what are supposedly their kind of peak years. You know, you you you're not going to hopefully be able to buy. You know, Reese James, in, you know, until he's like 35 or something and, and whatever happens to him or, you know, City aren't going to sell, uh, you know, Kevin De Bruyne in his absolute peak or David Silva or whoever it's going to be. You know, uh, Karim Benzema will only go back to France when Real Madrid have got every single piece of ability out of him. You know, I think when I look at Sterling and look at City's willingness to deal him, that would have been a, quite an immediate red flag for me. Yes, you know, as this point, we're nowhere near them at the moment in terms of squad or in terms of quality. Um and maybe again, you're looking at Arsenal and their, their, their sort of pursuit of, of of Gabriel Jesus and how that's worked out for them. And they're actually doing pretty well off the back of it. But the Sterling signing, that was one that I remember you not being an enormous fan of at the beginning. How have you seen him come in terms of his, his sort of initial couple of months at Chelsea? And, and do you do you expect any sort of real significant improvement or are you starting to see some of these sort of rumours about him departing, almost being a little bit of the, the kind of the writing on the wall in terms of his Chelsea career?
1: Yeah I wasn't a massive fan and it's a shame because I have always been a massive fan of Sterling generally. Um, I know from from anecdotes he's a top guy um, by all accounts. I've not heard a bad word through decades um, of him being like the local go-to for who's going to make it and stuff. Um, Leadership's an interesting one because I don't think he's going to be yeah I don't think he's ever going to be the loud one but just i i i imagine and hope that there is a degree of leadership there and and people sort of i think he's probably a top guy to have around to be honest um in terms of being a pro and and being good for the younger guys and stuff but obviously the problem with that is there's 50 million and allegedly who knows 300 grand a week um which is you don't that's not you you get leaderships on bosman's you don't get spend 50 million for leadership um uh, yeah, the, it's just my big thing when he was signed him was it's a lot of football and he's moving home and he's won everything except for the Champions League. And it just go back to the sort of the Mourinho thing. You don't, you, you sign the players who have yet to win. There's a degree of seniority and, and winning mentality that you maybe want, but if they've won everything, they want to play more than they want to win, arguably, when moving away from City, you're moving home. Um, you're on a big contract, you've played so much football as a player who relies on their physical gifts largely, he's not an incredible technician, he's not necessarily a massive player, I actually think his playmaking has been okay, but he's not not a Bernardo Silva, De Bruyne type Um, I think City I think wingers can look very good at City um, because they are so good at just isolating the fullbacks Um, and so I think I was never going to expect those numbers, to be honest. Um, and I think, like he, again, he's another one. He's had good games. I'm not 100% Potter knows what he exactly wants out of him. I think he probably looked a bit... His role was clearer defined under Tuchel. And although it wasn't amazing, he was just attacking that last line on the shoulder, um, leading the press. And it, it was just a bit more of a clearly defined role, whereas Potter's kind of have him dropping into pockets. He's had him on the right. He's had him as a wing back, and... You know, I think Potter's potentially relying on that leadership quality and that personality piece of it, but yeah, I'd like to think we're not cutting the call this early, Um, but it is concerning, and I do think think there's certain players that if you're getting a a slower Raheem Sterling, there's not a massive use case for why he would be in the team over a uh, Mount, or in theory, an Nkunku, if that signing comes to fruition or yeah. a willing to prove it all absolute speedster with quadriceps like a wrestler uh, in Mudrick <laughs> um, so yeah so it's, it's concerning to be honest the, the form's not been great he's done some nice little things he's quick onto second balls he's knitted things to, together okay in the final third but yeah concerning for sure
0: we move on to Kaladu Kulabali. Um this Next one's upset months. me so
1: much. Yeah, this one's so. upset me so much. I was such a fan in Italy. It's just I think you've you've played at a certain pace your whole life. It's okay to get slower. It's not it's hard to play quicker. Um I think the the cynical fouls he gets away with in Italy just get the crowd on you in England in a way that and that pressures the refs like you wouldn't believe. Compared to there. Um, I think you get away with a little bit more of of fouls of at the halfway line, fouls in the opposition half. It's just it's just the clumsiness. Even on the ball, he's been he's been worse than he usually would be. He still provides some good bits on the ball, but they're infrequent. Um, a lot of the passes seem lazy. I liked the idea of him coming in in a back three more than just uh, I, I know he's played in the back four most of his life but I did sort of think back three is even better because it just gives him that little bit of luxury but I think he's he's struggling with the pace he's over relying on his physicality which is just making him look heavy-footed clumsy getting into yellow card trouble early or foul trouble early a couple times obviously got an early raid against Leeds yeah. um <laughs> yeah just 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 disappointing um and for all the Mudric uh for all the Mudric talk about the fee, Mudric is on the books actually gonna cost less than Kukurea Sterling and Koulibaly per year, considering their contracts and fees and alleged wages. Um so, so yeah, poor. Uh, you just ha- you just sort of hope that the stock is still high in Italy or-, or he has a sort of late season resurgence as he adjusts. But I think the the clambering into challenges, the the um slowing as as players approach but not in a good sort like not in a good career way good career way slows on approach and he sort of gets low and he gets in good defensive stance and generally is okay one v one out of Coulibaly just clambers into him and just just yeah it's just clumsy it, it looks poor he looks too slow um really disappointing. gutted one of my favorite players in Italy for years Guide.
0: I don't think there's much to add to that, apart from the fact that I think Chelsea of the fact that well the fact that Chelsea have gone out and spent money on on Benoit Baddie, or Shield. I think that says an awful lot in terms of what they they see as the the future of that left sided centre back role and, and obviously you know with the the sort of the rise to prominence in the past you know weeks or months of, of Levi Cole at Brighton and I think as we've alluded to the a sort of touted or rumoured uh, England call up on the horizon as well. I don't see Koulibaly as, as being a a sort of real long term piece there. I was kind of hoping, guys, that he might eventually take over that sort of middle centre back role with with Thiago Silva, but I, I just don't I just don't see the kind of profile fit in the Premier League because I think you're right. It's the it's the over reliance on the physicality and, and and it it does make him look heavy footed and it does make him look quite stiff hipped and it, it just makes him look very rash and clumsy at times. And Thiago is is getting you know away you know at thirty eight with essentially having very little legs left compared to you know in his in his sort of prime just because of the intelligence and the class in which he plays the role. So I'm not entirely sure he's got a huge a huge feature there. On the converse there talking about futures
1: two goals though and, and God knows we need those. So yes, exactly know, yeah every club.
0: Exactly, every cloud has a silver lining there. So he, yeah, he is actually a set piece threat, which is probably the one thing you can say about him. But it'd be interesting to see how much he plays now that Badia is is here, and, and certainly you know on, on the first showing looked to be kind of up to speed already, which was which was actually quite a positive sign of the January window. Which will interesting about though
1: also. again, we'll talk, yeah, we'll talk about Shield in a second. Interesting though that Potter seems to have really defaulted to Kudabali post World Cup. Um, has he played in every game? I think he except I think he started every game except for Palace um ahead of Chalabar you know um so so I, I feel like he's the sort of player who in the small sided games in training probably looks great um and he looks strong and he looks fit and he uh has personality and leadership and vocals and technically is brave with his decisions out the back and then i just feel like those small sided games when you try and transfer them to full pitch premier league defending on the counter Against the quickest players, he would have defended against for a couple of years. Um, it just it just doesn't quite match up. But yeah, anyway, Carney Chukwomika. One of the positives of twenty twenty three so far. Finally getting some starts. Finally yep. getting some influence. Palace was a good showing. Um, yeah, have you have you found the, the Carney experience so far?
0: I've I've actually really enjoyed him, I and I think you're right. Of all the summer business, I've kind of put in the notes that probably it's my favourite piece that we did. Um, I think. Eventually, you know, I'm hoping to see sort of second, well, I suppose the second half of the season, the rest of the season, really, that's coming up, start to see him maybe play in, the, in sort of that midfield pivot a little bit more regularly. You know, he really shone and broke through in the England kind of youth setup playing in that role and was, was phenomenal when I watched him now. And I think his. His skill set, his ability to dribble, you know, his ability to find a pass, he's got a, a lovely turn of place, lovely change of direction. He's got that kind of modern sort of central midfield kind of skill set that you're looking at that, you know, players who have got a little bit more age on him or, or players that are a little bit more kind of uh, notoriety at the moment have in terms of got Jude Bellingham and stuff like that. He does have that sort of ability to to dribble, to carry, to pass, to win tackles, and, and I think certainly that is is sort of interest to me. Certainly, as I say, this this sort of the the rest of the season going forward. Um, I think he's had some really nice cameos. I think he's actually come on and really impacted games in a positive way. Um, Maybe the the Palace game wasn't his his greatest showing, but again, you know, an incredibly young player, and I think he had some nice moments in that game as well. You know, seems to have a nice uh, creative sort of side to him in the final third, which again you know, given our, our struggle and our inability to to not just finish chances but to actually create good scoring opportunities, I think that is also that something that we have to we have to factor in. And I'm curious to sort of see in terms of his positioning going forward, whether he is he's slotted into a midfield role or, or he plays one of these sort of number tens or or kind of Y players that we see in, in kind of Potter's various sort of tactical setups at the moment. So I think, yeah, I think he's one certainly that has a future um, I'm just curious to see where he sort of matures and, and, and kind of which which position we see in this this kind of shape where he's actually going to eventually end up there. Um, I think the last one we're going to talk about, and maybe not spend an awful amount of time here, Yas, because I think both of us, maybe a little bit of a head scratcher here. But Pierre Amrik Um to to sign the guy for Thomas Tuchel to then sack Tuchel like seconds later, it it just felt like an absolute just real strange piece of business kind of all around to, you know appease the existing manager to then get rid of that manager and then you know his his kind of output really since then has just been I, I don't want to use the word diabolical maybe that's too strong but it's just been really abject and and quite poor um, I've, I've put one question <laughs> under Aubameyang in the show notes which is just why why <laughs> why did we sign him and and I mean you know I don't want to go into the does he have a future here aspect of it but this, this to me, just seemed to be maybe the, I don't know, the, pop, I don't know if it's the worst piece of business that we did in the summer, but certainly the most head-scratching.
1: Just to do it the week before second two call is wild. Um, yeah, I mean, we went over this at the time and I think word for word I said, he'll come in, he'll score a couple of goals. And go. And it'll be a waste, <laughs> of, every, a waste of everyone's time, yeah. Yeah. Um, 12 million euros, and there's already sort of rumours that Barcelona are exploring the opportunity to maybe get him back for free. Uh, 12 million euros, six months after he was told by Arsenal, um, the team that we're now 20 something points behind, to um, just see you later. Don't need you. And look, I'm not going to pretend that uh, he had a really good spell at Barcelona in between those uh, things happening, but it just sort of goes to show, especially with the position that the club are now in, where you're wanting to sort of rebuild and go younger and, and go again. It's just, yeah, I mean, moving on.
0: <laughs> I think on that note, we'll conclude the second part of this uh, this Tinkerman podcast. So again, thank you to the sponsors for financially contributing to the show. And we'll be back after the break. Hello, Chelsea fans, and welcome back to the final part of this Tinkerman podcast. This is your host, Joe Tweez And as usual, I am joined by my illustrious co-host, Jason McLean. And then the final part of this Tinkerman episode, we're going to be taking a look at the January window, the window of opportunity, I have called it. Um, a little bit of an evaluation, a little bit of a look into what this sort of says to, to Chelsea's future recruitment strategy, what it says about, I suppose, the, the way that the club is now looking to, to conduct business. Um, and I think, again, looking a tiny bit at what we are hoping to see conclude before the end of the, the window shuts on the 31st of January here. So, Coming into to January, and I, I want to caveat this by saying at the moment, I'm, I'm really I'm really happy with the people that Chelsea have, have managed to sign. Um, I do like the direction here, but obviously in the nature of this being a podcast and, and trying to ask some rather provocative questions, I will set this up in a particular way. So entering the, the January window, Chelsea were and still are desperate for Rhys James cover or arguably a person to to start and compete with Rhys James for that right wing back spot. Um, and probably one starting calibre central midfielder. At the moment, Chelsea have signed uh, Gabriel Solnina, a goalkeeper, Benoit badia a centre-back, um, an 18-year-old central midfielder from Andre Santos, who is an incredible talent, but certainly nowhere near starting calibre at the moment for Chelsea. Hopefully he develops in the future. A left winger in Michelo midric uh, a wide forward on loan, Charles Felix, and a centre forward in David Hafana, spending roughly... £125 million pounds in the process. So setting that up, Yaz, with possibly Chelsea's greatest needs being a Rhys James kind of cover, and most likely at the moment, given the injuries to, to Kante, given Kovar is, is effectively at the moment playing on half a leg, um, given Jorginho looks to be leaving in the summer um, and there not being an awful lot of other midfield places at the moment that seem to be filled by anyone of, of real quality. Should Chelsea have thrown absolutely every single penny they could have to to try and sign Enzo Fernandez? And uh, do you think that would have been a prudent strategy or are you happy with the the way that they've they've approached this window so far? And I get that that is an incredibly loaded question, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. No, I
1: think uh, you can go, for, anyone who's listened to this pod for a while will know that I'm very big on, if you feel it's the right target, go all in for the right target. Um, I remember we go back to the Lukaku question. I said, if you didn't get Haaland, don't just spend $100 million pound on pound shop pollen just wait it out and wait for another target who you're really you know 100% about um when only it was only a January or two ago that the fan base were saying ah oh, there's injuries and so we need to sign uh Luca Dina from um I don't even remember where he joined Villa from now but there was there was oh, we need to sign him on a four-year deal and it's like well we'll know let's just you know wait till summer and see what happens and in theory, you could have had Lewis Hall, William Martin and, and Chilwell not being injured. We weren't Kukureo. We, obviously, we've discussed that. But I'm very big on if, if someone's the right target, okay, go all in. But don't just pivot to uh, just a poor version for the same money when you have Cobham and you have um, the young players that we have, signed. black. Um, so I think Enzo is incredibly unique. I think Enzo is a really cool player. I think Enzo provides something that not many uh, people do. I do think people are doing very bad maths when they're saying, so wait, we signed Mudric for this amount of money and we couldn't sign Enzo for this amount of money. Benfica seemed very, very clear that that is a release clause upfront situation. Um, very, very different to the Mudrick deal, which has been broken on the books over an eight-year period, seven and a half year period, um, with an option for a further year and is massively incentive-based. For about forty percent of the fee, um so I think they're very very different things. I think yes, probably should have done a bit more with Enzo. I think the ownership seem to have generally the ownership seem to have made positive relationships in football generally Barcelona um seemed to have you know found found working with them easy. Leeds came out and said they were great to work with Brighton, despite getting gutted, seems to not hate working with them. Um uh obviously sort of Leipzig, we have that now with Vivelle. We kind of have the the relationship you'd imagine there. Um and then there was another club, uh oh, in Shakhtar who've basically come out and said, Yeah, no, working with them was a joy for this deal and they were very, very upfront and everything like that. I do think the Benfica deal is the one where they've come out and just been like, Yeah, we really don't like how they handled that. So maybe that's some learning for them. Um, but I am big on if 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 that's the midfielder you want. Don't go and just spend sixty million on one you're not sure on. Um give Chukwameka a go. Give Hall a go. See if you can use the carrot with some minutes for, for Webster. Give um get Kovacic back fit. You know, just don't go back to a three-four-three where those two midfielders are, are placeholders a little bit. Like, yeah, I'm just I'm just keen to not get ourselves into more of a situation where you're just stuck with players who are mediocre, not here long term, on big contracts that are hard to shift. Uh, um, go down the younger route, take a chance. You know, um, I, I, like I, you talked about all the people we've signed. You've got Hutchinson, Hutchinson Madrid, Fafana as a front three, Chocomeca, Santos, Casa as a hypothetical three that will probably never play together, but three, three bodies. You've got Badia Shield, you've got Slonina, you've got Cole will waiting in the wings. You've got um, some decent academy talent at right back. You've got Rankin. You've got Humphreys making his way in the squad. You've got Matson on loan. Like we have a very very promising sort of under twenty three team that have been yeah. put together. Um, I'd much rather just yeah take another gamble rather than feeling the need. It would be so easy to with Broder out and Obama Yang potentially leaving to just have gone for a 30-minute placeholder. But I'd much rather, yeah, try Antonio on loan and give Fafana a go, because I do feel like it's a bit of a lost season in terms of competitiveness route of both domestic clubs. I'm not expecting a lot in the Champions League. So, yeah, it's it's, it's development over uh, performance, I'd say. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's many midfielders that are offering what um, Enzo is offering. The thing I will say about Enzo and Caicedo is... Both of these guys were signed for a pittance. Enzo literally six months ago, July, he was signed for about 10 million euros. We've put this team together now. You've got Joe Shields, you've got Vivelle, you've got um Winston Lee, you've got this team now. Go and find the next one. Don't like 60 million, 60-70 million on Caicedo for me would be quite alarming because that feels very old Chelsea. And we're meant to be at the beginning of new Chelsea. And surely, like, surely that you can find the next one. I don't, yeah, I don't understand how six months or or a year and a half of of high level football is is what you go off like go find the next one. But um, but yeah, like look, okay, we have the needs, um, but I would much rather not be knee jerk and saddled with with bad deals as we're having to see from the summer.
0: I think. Sort of moving on to this, the part part there. I mean, it, I think the interesting thing there was you're, you're hinting at this potential kind of new transfer strategy. The the sort of the the think tank of of directors and, and recruitment people that Chelsea have have hired. Um, I think the question I'll ask it and maybe sort of answer partly before handing it over is is about. This window appears to be very much in line with a, a new direction with the club and i think you're right in terms of going out and signing a sysedo for 70 mil plus whatever it might be feels kind of like a little bit of a departure and maybe a, to an extent that the xiao felix deal being alone with no obligation or, or option feels a little bit sort of old school chelsea but maybe that was certainly driven by the i think you know jazz outlined earlier how many injuries and just inconsistencies we have in, the, in sort of the, the forward areas at Chelsea so far this season. So that probably is, is, is more explainable. But it feels like this this is, I think, very re- reflective of the sort of business that Chelsea are going to, to be doing. I mean, there was a period where, you know, Michael Amanalo and that sort of scouting network that Chelsea had were able to unearth lots of, of ridiculous talent in in Belgium and, and other areas of the world by you know sort of just really putting in the the work and trying to find the 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 next big thing before it becomes you know somebody who moves to a, a Leicester or a Brighton or Southampton or whoever it might be in terms of a you know another European club in in France or Germany or, or whatever you know whatever sort of shape that that transfer takes so I think again you know the the one that probably sticks out to me is is probably Andre Santos from Brazil it's the first time I think we've signed a sort of an under-21 sort of player from Brazil who has a reputation and, and potential. Maybe sort of going back to kind of like an Oscar kind of profile signing when we signed him from directly from Brazil uh, many, many years ago now. But I think that for me is definitely a... A nod to a, a much different sort of tactic than what we've seen at Chelsea. Certainly, in the, in the latter years of the of the Abramovich sort of ownership and the, the Scott kind of McLaughlin scouting model, which didn't necessarily seem to yield that many interesting prospects or really, you know, fill the score with that much talent. So, I think a real departure in terms of obviously trying to scout further, afield than what we have in, in recent years. Um, I think Slonina is an interesting one in terms of obviously the American market the owners come in from, but from from what I've heard, you know, an incredibly talented prospect there. Badia Sheil was somebody that I've had my own eye on for a while. Watching a lot of Monaco when Schumani was there, um, and I think again, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit more about about Mudrik at the at the end of the episode because he does feel potentially like a very special talent. So I think the the approach definitely signifies this kind of change of, of tact in in strategy where they are trying to find players who have the ability to be developed into. Sort of top tier players at Chelsea. I think you know there is obviously room. You could see with the the sort of the efforts to try and sign a you know Enzo Fernandez. There is definitely room where they're trying to buy sort of best in class players and marry that with some of these sort of younger signings and signings that are there for more kind of developmental reasons or or signings they feel have the ability to be a Champions League kind of caliber player. Um, do you, I mean? Do you have sort of any real takeaways from January? Because it seems you know we, we've gone through the, the summer signings in quite a forensic nature. Um, you know, looked at them quite, quite atomic fashion. It seems to be an enormous departure from what we've seen in the summer. So, are, are you seeing this impact of this kind of recruitment sort of think tank already, Yaz?
1: I, I mean, I like the January moves. I think Modric's a good move. Um, I saw him basically be the one man banned against Celtic in the Champions League twice, um, where they Shakhtar were totally dominated all game, but he was he was really too hard to handle. Um when I was watching Monaco to sort of have a little bit more of a look at Chiuameni, I think I even messaged you about a year ago saying that Badia Shield stood out to me as really promising. I think his performance against Palace was good. I think he was um, safe after a couple of positional slips where he let people in behind early on. I think he was very safe, very sensible um, on the ball, off the ball. There was a moment early in the second half where I think Alisa got the better of him. And unfortunately, a Koulibaly there is just taking him out and just sort of trying to take him down and, and stop the play. Badish Shield just got, got the right side, delayed, delayed, delayed. Bodies got back to recover, came to nothing. Um, I think Mudrik, that we sort of alluded to, offers something that we haven't seen in quite a long time, to be honest. I think Sterling and Pulisic are both um, players who physically, speed-wise, explosiveness, probably are never going to get back to their um quickest and they're are most athletic. Ziyech has never been a player where he's gonna get you up the pitch by himself very, very, very quickly. Um Mount, Gallagher, they're okay at it, but they're not they're not speed demons themselves. They're good endurance athletes and good strong runners, but they're not um as quick as as a Mudric. So I think I think Mudric sort of in that in that transition mode offers something that we haven't really seen since maybe William in terms of wide players who can just get you up the pitch. Alone um William Hazard. So I think that's really exciting. Um I think Joao Felix adds something like Girard Felix earlier in Fulham before obviously the red, like he was just movements, passes that we just haven't had for a little bit in terms of their intensity and their intention and getting the ball forward quickly. And he played a lovely one round the corner for Havertz to go down the right. Within two minutes of the game, he was being released down the right and, and chopping inside and, and getting the ball across for that early hall chance. Um, I think Mudric's going to hopefully have the same sort of impact. Um, but just having potentially after he his services ban, um, having just Mudric and Felix up top compared to what we've been seeing most of this season is going to, I think, feel like night and day. Um, and so I'm really excited for that. But yeah, in terms of the longer term signings, we don't know what's going to happen with Joao Felix. But in terms of Mudric and Paddy I don't think you can really turn your nose up at, at those two. I think they're really, really promising signings. Um, areas of long term need. The the left sidedness of Badisho and Coldwell is a slight issue. We'll see how that kind of manages itself. But um but yeah, so I'm I'm really positive about those two. I think there might be another signing in the window. We'll see what happens. Um you do feel like at least one of centre midfield or right back could just do with an extra body. I think the Trevo has been a quite a Rubin solution at right back, right wing back. Arguably Gallagher down there. I think it's it's maybe enough, but it's very much a plaster, not a not a cast.
0: Where would you go, Yaz? Where would you go if you if you if you can make one more signing? Let's say, I don't know, a forty fifty million pound player. Where are you going, midfield or, or wing back?
1: I think midfield's the the bigger need. I do. Matt, uh, I think Matt Law on 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 his episode sort of recently said what we said about a year ago um, when the big right back <laughs> for Raw was made, and it's just like. Well, it's it's tough because players don't want to be second choice. And he used the exact Harry Kane example, I think, that we did. Like it's tough. Like um, you have to overpay four versatile players. Like they managed to finally get some support in Richarlison and he can play with Kane. He can play to the side of Kane. He can play off Kane. Um, and so I think it is gonna be difficult. I would I'd be interested in seeing what ranking has to offer. Um, I do think if we were playing a three. I think Gallagher or Ruben can sort of do a job at at wing-back. I think Trev in a four can do a job. I've said that since Tuchel tried it against Palace a while ago. I think midfield is just a big need. Jorginho's off. Kante is Kante. We've talked about this at length. Kovacic, I don't expect to be here in 18 months, two years. Kind of feels like the end of a cycle. It's just not quite playing with the same intensity and the same verve. And I do think he was sort of managing an injury before the World Cup and is going to limp to the finish line a little bit. I'd like to see Chukwamika deeper more often. That would be really yeah. interesting. Not 100% Gallagher's ever going to be a real starter. Again, I find it funny that the whole misprofiling thing that was happened a lot under Tukwal, we played very deep against Palace and, and did an okay job. I think he's, he, as a squad player, he's great to have last 20 minutes. But I think, yeah, midfield has to, it has to be midfield. Um, yeah, it has to be midfield. But again, I'd rather wait and not just. Create another fifty million pound problem. Yeah, (laughs) and that's that's where I'm at with it. Really, like just I think Mudrik and Badie. There we go. Mudrik and Badie I think, are good. You can see the long term, medium term plan. Even for Farno, if he gets over his fitness issues, like yeah, you can see the investment there. Just don't want it to be short term. That's the only thing I'll say, uh, and that's yeah. And then the rest we can talk rebuilds in about two weeks, one week.
0: Yeah, I I, I think I'm, I'm completely the same there. I think it's you know, I was I was very keen for them to try and go all out and sign you know sort of the 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 best central midfielder they, they could available. I think you can still potentially look at sort of the 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 rebuild at the moment. I, I think maybe I don't know if, if it's if it's going to be the case with Chelsea, but possibly a little bit more difficult to attract the calibre of player that you want without Champions League football without massively overplaying, uh, overpaying the, the player potentially and also the the club there. So, you know, the kind of profile of player that I would hope Chelsea could build around, you know, a, a Bellingham, a Fernandez, that sort of kind of box-to-box, all-round sort of player. Um, I'm not sure if, if you'll get them in the summer if we aren't in the Champions League, which it looks likely at this moment in time. So, probably... Would have hoped to have seen you know again something with but to yas's point there you know to give i think it was 105 million pounds straight up in cash um for a play with no with no sort of payment structure um probably does feel a little bit uh probably un- unfeasible and un- kind of untenable for the club to to sort of activate at this point in time whether you think he is the player or not I, I tend to believe that he probably would be the guy but you know you-, you have to be absolutely certain and again it probably comes down to whether they could generally just pull up 105 million in cash and deposit it and-, and-, and trigger the clause um I'm very very happy with the bad issue signing I think he's going to be a good player I do agree with you yes, ask that there is potential to have uh some some interesting conversations in the future with Colwell and and who both being left-footed. Um, I can't think of, and again, to, to you, Yas, or to listeners, maybe this is an interesting question, uh, a centre-back p- pairing who have, you know, like a, a top team, uh, you know, top European football, Champions League calibre team who have played two left-footed centre-backs. Um, obviously, you know, JT was right-footed, played on the left. You know, we get that most of the time, but I don't know too many left, left-footed centre-backs who play on the right in a two, for example, or, or even in a three.
1: Yeah, I think the thing for me, look, we've always seen set-about partnerships with two right-footers. So in theory, two left-footers shouldn't really be an issue. I think the thing with me is, of the two of them, for me, I probably would like War more to be on the left, um, just to be able to play things first time, to to have the whole range of the pitch, to be able to play things down the line, to be able to play things like straight for the left-winger and everything like that. Um, so then it's sort of a case of, I think it works if, Badia Shield is comfortable defending that side, comfortable sending people to the right, comfortable opening up onto his right. Um, and he seems to have very much been wedded to the left in his time at Monaco. So that would be my only concern. I think you probably, I think Levi could probably pop on the right, no problem. Um, but you'd, I think you'd want his left footedness just to be able to play around the corner, play it over the top, switch it, play it down the line, open up. Um, I think if we were to go to a back three, I think, it, it sort of solves itself you just have one of them in the middle but uh cool, but yeah probably, so yeah probably a topic for probably a topic for another day and another season
0: yeah cool okay perfect um that draws this episode to, to a conclusion as i say yaz and i a little bit of state of the the nation address there where we are with graham potter where we are with the summer signings a little bit of an analysis of the january window so far um, some shoots of positivity, I think that's fair to say for, for both of us there, uh, with very much a view on this Art of the Rebuild episode that we are planning for the conclusion of the January window. So I'm assuming that will come in the first week of, of, of February there. So as always, thank you for joining us. Any questions, comments, uh, whatever it might be, ping Yaz or I or the Londoners Blue guys on the podcast. And until next time, take care and we will see you all very, very soon.